So today we're looking at Exodus 12, and my plan is to look at the first 28 verses. I don't know how that's going to work out. We'll just take it and see how it goes. Um, with the next week, with us not meeting as a class in here, um, it's causing me to rethink how I'm going to do some things coming up. But <clears throat> I, I likely, if we got through this, would have been bringing you a video next week. And when I watch videos as a student, sometimes I, I go, well, that was okay, but you know, have trouble paying attention all the way through or whatever. And, and I'm not saying there won't be some of that because some of it's fairly technical, but it's exciting stuff before you get done. The, the confirmation, and I, we don't need archaeology to confirm the Bible, do we? We know where we start, we know what the truth is, but it's exciting when you get some of the confirmation when, when, when it occurs. And there's, there's some exciting things to go through in at least the first video I want to bring to us. So... Um, that's coming soon, but won't be next week, I know that for sure, because we won't be here. So, um, last time in chapter 11, we saw some communication from God to Moses that was instruction for the people. And the instructions were, uh, tell the people to ask for articles of silver and gold from their neighbors. And neighbors, in this case, means the Egyptians. <coughs> they are told you now have favor or esteem or respect or maybe fear. Uh, from the people, and Moses is highly respected by the Egyptians. All of these plagues have been going on. The God of it's const, God is constantly mentioned uh, in His own declarations as being the God of the children of Israel, and so they recognize that these people are connected with a very powerful God. Um, and so um, this communication. And, and we'll talk about why as we go through this if I don't get distract much, if I don't distract myself, but may have likely been at the beginning of the ninth plague, that the one of darkness, and that we'll see if, if we can remember to bring some of that up as I go through the lesson today. And then God, through Moses, talks to Pharaoh and says about midnight, God says, I'm going out into Egypt and all the firstborn of the land will die from Pharaoh down to the lowliest servant girl. And by the way, the firstborn of the cattle will die also. And there will be a great cry in Egypt, in Egypt, greater than in all of history past and all of history future. So it's going to be a time of great anguish. And not even a dog, though, will bark in the sons of Israel. And this is a way of God showing his distinction between Egypt and the ones that he is bringing the plagues upon. Um, and the children of Jacob, of Israel. And he goes on to say that all of your servants, that is the servants of Pharaoh, will come to me, Moses, and bow down, and to God as well, because Moses is there as God's representative. And they will ask us to go out, and we will go out, us and all of our followers, and uh, out we will go. And it's interesting that the word there is those that follow Moses. Uh, we brought up the possibility, and I'm, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of uh, clarification in terms of was there a great number, was there a small number, was there any number, but it certainly looks like as we read through this uh, series of um, plagues 
that some people were beginning to recognize who God is and were following. And so there may have been some Egyptians in that group that leaves as well. And, and then we know that there will, will be some. Um, we had an interesting question last week. Was Pharaoh a firstborn? And so I decided to be fair to the class, I need to go out and try to figure that out. And that's all I accomplished was I tried. Uh, so I am convinced, and see, this is the next thing, to say was Pharaoh a firstborn, you have to identify who's the Pharaoh during the Exodus. And I am thoroughly convinced, personally, I'm not going to say the arguments are so easy and sound that if you're not convinced, then you're an idiot or something like that. But I'm thoroughly convinced that the Pharaoh that we're talking about goes by a couple of different names, but the one that would be most familiar most of the time would be uh, Didymus II or Titimaeus. Um, jo that Josephus, you know, was a Jewish scholar, uh, historian, and he quoted another scholar who was Greek, Manetheo, who for the Greeks wrote quite a history of Egypt. They asked him to, and he did. And uh, Joseph, but his works were destroyed um, during various conquests uh, by the Westerners. They burnt down the library, and I don't know where the library was, but all of his stuff was gone. And he was a great historian. And so what we turn to then is quotes from other historians of his history. And, jo and uh, Josephus did quote Manetho, and he called him Titimaeus. But here's why it gets hard to say whether or not he was a firstborn. So let's say it was Didymos II. Historians can't agree if he was the pharaoh during the 13th dynasty or the 16th dynasty, uh, dynasty meaning the evolutions of the leadership of Egypt. So if you can't even agree which dynasty is a part of, which they're a couple hundred years apart, give or take, um, trying to find details about his family, who were his parents, who were his siblings. Now normally, just like in succession and royalty yet today, you go to the firstborn, but we saw, we saw, we weren't alive for it. I don't think anybody in here looks like they're a hundred or more. Uh, but, you know, it happened in England. Man abdicated his throne, so the firstborn was no longer the king during World War II, right? He had let that go. So I can't tell you if he was the firstborn or not. I just, it, I just, with my, I mean, if I spent a lifetime researching it, I might be able, well, I don't have that much lifetime left. But if I'd started when I was 20 and spent a lifetime researching it, maybe I could figure it out, but certainly with the tools available to me, I don't know if he's a firstborn or not. In the course of fig, trying to figure that out, I did find a number of people that discussed the issue of, so was it just the firstborn who were, we would say today, minors that died? Or was it up through the generations? Or where did it stop? And there's no shortage of people who have their opinions that go both ways on that one. So um, nonetheless, what we do know is that Pharaoh who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus, didn't die because he goes on in the rest of our account in the book of Exodus. So after Moses makes his declaration to Pharaoh, he leaves in hot anger. 
uh, and we we could think of lots of reasons why the scriptures don't give them to us, but clearly Pharaoh is showing a lot of disrespect for God and for then Moses as his representative, and likely that was a piece of that. Afterwards, God tells Moses, Pharaoh's not going to listen, so don't think that because we brought him the truth that the next plague is death of the firstborn, that that's going to change Pharaoh's direction. But God also says he's not going to listen, and that aligns with God's purpose. He says, so that my wonders will be multiplied. So God is, is, is involved in this, and his plan includes Pharaoh not responding but having a hard heart, and that lets God exercise his plan to show his greatness in these mighty full wonders and plagues that he brings to Egypt. I say mighty and wonderful. Wonderful in that they are extremely demonstrative of God's great sovereign power. So with that said, let's go on to chapter 12. And I'm going to read the first 13 verses to begin with. And we'll look at those and then, and then continue on with another section. So... Now, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month there to each one take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each one. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be unblemished, male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, <clears throat> they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God is giving to Moses and Aaron some very specific directions about what he's going to do and uh, in the second verse well backing up looking at uh, 
chapter 11, verse 4, it says, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I'm going into the midst of Egypt. This is in the discussion with Pharaoh. And it sounds like it's going to happen that night uh, that they're having the discussion, or at least in the close proximity of it. That's, that's the way the context of it, as it's brought to us at least in English, looks. So about midnight that could be seen to be coming. But now when we get our instructions in, in chapter 12, just as we talked about the other instructions that were given in chapter 11 about asking for goods from the neighbors, from the Egyptians, uh, it, many of, of the solutions to, well, now wait a minute, because as we look at this, there's going to be some time involved. So this very well may have been occurring before the meeting with Pharaoh. And many would place it right at the beginning of that three days of darkness. Um, but as we go on, we see in verse 2 that God rearranges the Jewish calendar for them. Um, it's, a, it's a religious calendar to begin with, but now we're, he's going to say, Here it is, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It will be the first month of the year to you. So as their history moves forward, God is saying you're going to count your history from this being the beginning of a year for you. And so it's going to make it very commemorative. It's going to be your new year. And that month is Abib at this time is the most common name. When we get over to the time of Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra, that month has become the month of Nisan or Nisan. Nisan maybe. Um, basically, the Jewish calendar is done by months by months. Scratch that. That's absolutely correct. But I meant to say moons. And so just like our Easter celebration moves up and back, oh, by the way, it ties in with this, doesn't it? The, the month, the beginning of that month in terms of as we would look at a 365 day year might move a bit based on moons in the moon position. But um, this is uh, March, April. Just, I mean, Easter's coming soon, right? And, and you can look at it very much the same way. That's, that's what, what it is, is it, it moves back and forth. And so uh, this becomes the beginning of months for them. It's the way they track their time, which, which, by the way, they are not putting any significance on the moon phases and that religiously like some would do. It just was a way to tell time like we use the rotations of the sun or the earth around the sun. We don't, we don't think of that as some sort of worship that goes with that. It's just a way to tell time. And so um, Moses and Aaron are commanded <clears throat> tell the congregation of Israel. It could have said the multitude of Israel, the people of Israel, tell them that this becomes the first month, and on the tenth of the month, each one is to take a lamb for themselves according to their household. So we'll get further instructions as we go down through this. Verse 5, it's to be an unblemished male, uh, could be a sheep or a goat, and we'll talk more about that when we get down to verse 5, but they're to pick one that their home, that they're going to consume in their home. 
So it's done according to their household, one per household. Oh, if your household is not big enough to consume one, then get your closest neighbor, work together, pick one the right size so that you are going to consume it uh, on that night. And uh, if you're working with your neighbor, you're going to divide it up. And I'm going to say it's a division of the meat because I think there's something very important coming before we get done with this. So here they are to pick a lamb. And this lamb, they're going to kill it in unison in the twilight. We'll get to that too. But it's too strong of a use of this word picture here. I don't mean just a word picture. It's just too strong of a use of a lamb. And this is the beginning of the Passover. We have to go over and read John 1.36. We have to make this connection because it's real and it's correct. And it's there. So in John 1.36, we see John the Baptist in his role as the one making the path straight for the Lord, for the Messiah. And uh, we can back up to verse 35, and because he's talking to two of his disciples, it says again in verse 35, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. There's a connection here that uh, we need to understand and not go by too briefly or too quickly when we look at the type here, the, the, the example of what's happening is a foreshadowing of what's coming with Christ. Were the Jews the followers of Abraham free from sin? No, we would quickly say that. As a matter of fact, when we were studying Genesis, most of them were kind of scoundrels killing a whole community, a couple of them. The rest of the brothers join in and raiding that community for their goods and so on and, and carting people off and animals off and, oh, let's sell our brother into slavery. He's become an irritant. Um, these guys function like people of the world. Um, there's, even when we look at Jacob's blessings toward them he holds up joseph as and gives him quite a blessing he goes right by the first three in terms of their position um, reuben was the firstborn reuben violated morality in david's and david's in jacob's family and um judah then becomes one that gets a little more attention uh, because he was the fourth child but he was much more of a leader than any of the others outside of Joseph. Joseph gets attention. Jacob works it out that he treats each of his son, his Joseph's sons 
uh, to an inheritance which in effect gives Joseph the double inheritance because of the way that gets multiplied in the double inheritance was reserved for the firstborn and so Jacob's got a family that wasn't easy to lead and frankly some of Jacob's leadership wasn't wonderful either so when we look at what's going on here has Pharaoh been and Egyptians have they been in opposition to God very directly absolutely and God is visiting plagues on them it glorifies God it brings about the plagues he brings about the plagues so that he can glorify himself and keep his promise to Abraham and establish himself as the one true living powerful God in front of the Israelites he's accomplishing his purposes here but he's not passing over them because they earned it. He's passing over them because they are the descendants of promise. This is God's grace in action. And so here he is, he's chosen them, he's going to build a nation out of them, and he's doing all these things. And just as Jesus becomes, matter of fact, let's read 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that he might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took on sin, and he had no sin. He became the carrier of our sin, and as a matter of fact, um, I've got it in later, and so I'm not going to try to, well, let's do that. Um, no, that's not the right one. Okay, I don't want to get myself confused, but Jesus is even called our Passover. And I'll get to that verse when I come across it in my notes. And so th there is a definite connection here between those two, and so this lamb... It may not have been extremely obvious to the people at the time, but as God establishes them as a nation, they're going to have sacrifices for sin, and this lamb is giving its life and shedding its blood so that the plague that's going to come on the Egyptians will not fall on them. And it becomes what is the action of faith it's not that their faith saves them but it took some faith to do this and out of their faith in what God has said and what he's directed them they do what he said and put the blood on the doorposts and so the Passover is going to happen in verse 6 they are told you get this lamb and you keep it until the 14th and so this is the issue that says okay where did these four days fit they're going to get a lamb and keep it till the 14th. And then, in the last of the daylight hours of the 14th, they're going to kill it. This is between the two evenings. The way they reckon their days, and they still do today, for those that want to keep things like the Sabbath, it starts at sundown this day. That's the next day. Sundown occurs, you're now in the next day. 
and it goes until the sundown uh, for the following day. And so before that day starts, meaning at twilight, at the very end of the day, before, just before sundown, you're going to kill this lamb on the 14th, which means the Passover activities <clears throat> are going to happen on the 15th of the month. So these four days, where did they come out of it? Did, it, did, did Moses stand in front of Pharaoh and say about midnight on God's behalf? Did he stand before Pharaoh and say about midnight I'm going out and that's really a few days later? Or has the communication already occurred and the people are already prepared to do this act of the Passover which leads right into or act of sacrifice of the lamb and eat the Passover, celebrate what would become called the Passover and move right into that. Well, most folks would say these communications would have occurred earlier. So then as Moses is leaving that night uh, will be the sacrifice, the death of the lamb and they'll roast it and they will eat it. Questions, comments? I'm just uh, making connections here. Like these, the, the typology wouldn't have been lost on these folks because their great 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 granddad had to sacrifice his own son Isaac. And, That's a good point. And the Lord provided a ram in the thicket. Mm-hmm. Rather, so what they're seeing now is that uh, God is not going to take their firstborn son, but He's going to allow a sacrifice to be made in order to preserve their lives. And so I think that, uh, like in in their minds with uh, the oral tradition and pa- the passing down of those, those stories, like that wouldn't have been lost on them, that their, their forefather, Abraham, had to do a very similar things um, to preserve the life of Isaac. So. Yeah, I, I think that's very likely that there could be connecting that. Um, I, <laughs> I look at how dense we can be and figure there was a portion of them that figured it out and there was a portion of them that go, okay, and just did it. But... Uh, but no, and as we look at the scriptures very clearly, there's, there's a connection here. Um, you've got multiple times when this role of the lamb, it was a ram in the case of, of Isaac and his plan to sacrifice as directed by God. But yeah, I, I mean, clearly that, that does tie in directly. Good comment. So while they were in darkness in Egypt, I I would I would think that's most likely, just based on the language that was being used uh, in the meeting with Pharaoh between Moses on representing God, where he says about midnight I'm headed out. Now they didn't say tonight or four days from now. So, but yeah, I I tend to think that God has been preparing the people uh, for this moment during that time of darkness. Uh, It seems as though things have come to a head in the communications between Pharaoh and Moses representing God where Pharaoh basically says, if you see me again, it'll be so I can kill you. Uh, Or if you do see me, I will kill you kind of a thing. And Moses, you know, that all seems to be um, fully developed in the conflict now. And Moses leads in hot anger. It just seems like it's time. Uh, I think that fits the best. I mean, if <clears throat> if somebody that 
were alive today or could find some ancient written record said no 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 here five days went by I mean I would say well that's by the text that's possible I just don't think that's very likely okay so <clears throat> they're all going to keep it until the 14th kill it on the 14th and things will happen on the uh, 15th now an interesting thing here is that this kill it before sunset Josephus now <clears throat> I went out and looked at a lot of things and read a lot of things about the Passover and celebrating the Passover what has it has um, well, I don't know what I want to use a really good word here but what celebrating of the Passover has become today is a lot different it's got a lot more to it some of the things are very meaningful some of the things were changed I don't mean changed like they dis like they took any of this away but as you combine the Passover and we're going to talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread they brought other things in with a lot of symbology um, and some of what they do or don't do comes about as a result of the destruction of the temple <clears throat> by the time you get to Jesus uh, they were wanting to do their sacrifices only in the temple or only in the tabernacle before that well once the destruction of the temple occurs today the way they practice it they don't do the same things because they don't have the temple there with regard to the killing of the lamb and eating the lamb and some of those kinds of things so it's a challenge to sort out modern practices and to just stick pretty directly with this text and not add anything to it with regard to this first time where they actually did the sacrifice and put the blood on their doorpost to uh, be warding off to give the signal to God so that he would not bring this plague upon them. But <clears throat> nonetheless, Josephus, the Jewish historian, said... The custom is to kill the lamb at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's the time, which is interesting. Let's go read Luke 23, 44 through 46. Luke 23, 44 through 46. Um, so Jesus is on the cross and we'll talk about these times here in a minute in verse 44 it's now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour the sun, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, if we recognize how the Jewish clock for the day worked, the sixth hour was always the middle of the day, what we would call noon. So however long the day was, you know, we have our hours all have 60 minutes in them, and you know so on and so on and so 12 o'clock midnight is the time it is where no matter how long the sun's been down but in the winter time the Jewish hours during the day would be much shorter 
because they've only they always had 12 hours of daylight. They just shortened how long an hour was if they were having shorter days. So when it says the sixth hour darkness fell, that's noon. And it's interesting what precedes the death of the Lamb of God. Darkness. Interesting and a bit of a type, I believe. And so the sun became obscured. The veil of the temple was torn in two, and we know that's the release of the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit was available to all the believers. And then Jesus cried out this at, at, the, um, at the ninth hour is when Jesus would have been crying out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and breathe his last, which again would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now that's lining up Josephus' account of their common practice, not something we're reading right out of the scriptures. But it's, it's interesting that in the Jews that would have been alive in Jesus' day, he's dying on the day of the Passover, and they would have seen that as lining up with their time to be making their sacrifice. Questions, comments? So the lamb becomes uh, the uh, one to have its blood shed so that they can follow God's direction. And then verse 7, they take some of the blood and they put it on their doorposts and their lintel of their house that they're going to be eating it in. And, you know, we could ask the question, why? Well, clearly, this is a sign of obedience. And they would be obeying because they believed the words of God were true. And they were expecting this calamity to be coming upon every home that did not, did not follow God in his direction to uh, do this. Uh, it reminds me of Romans 5.8. Let's turn to that. Romans 5, 8 through 11. Probably ought to back up to 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even care to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And, and here's the part that <clears throat> fits into what's going on here. Much more than now having been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. <clears throat> and the point I want to make from this is who was bringing the wrath upon the Egyptians? God himself. And so um, the blood on the doorpost <clears throat> was the thing that God would be looking for to identify the ones that were following him and he would not exercise his wrath upon them. Sometimes we get confused as believers or lose track of what the peril is that Jesus Christ saves us from. 
And the peril is not something Satan would do to us. That's what some people think. The peril, and it's listed right here, we were enemies. And we were reconciled with God and saved by His life. But if you back up to verse 9, it is His blood that saved us from what? The wrath of God. It is God Himself that we are saved from by God Himself through what He does with Jesus Christ. And in the same way, it is God Himself that gave them instructions <clears throat> that as they follow these instructions, God Himself is saving these followers, descendants of Israel from His own wrath that's being poured out on the Egyptians. So verse 8 says that in that same night back in Exodus, which is now the 15th after sunset, now eat the flesh. It's to be fire roasted with unleavened bread. Do it in haste with bitter herbs. <clears throat> and the bitter herbs, I, I worked at trying to understand what that was and... There were a couple that were listed as typical lettuce and chicory, but um, others that I, I don't relate to. And I, some, when I was a kid, I would have considered lettuce a bitter herb. Why are you making me eat this stuff? Um, <clears throat> but I don't know that I would put it in that category today. Certain varieties, certainly, so maybe not all lettuce is created equal. All these things are there to remind them of the bitterness of their time of slavery. And that's a part of what they're talking about in verse 8. In verse 9, we talk about the preparation of the lamb or the goat. You're not to eat any of it raw or boiled. And <clears throat> many believe that the prohibition against rawness could have a couple of different things in it. Um, one is they were going to be given food laws later that said you don't eat anything with the blood in it. And obviously they're draining the blood and using it for part of their activities here. So that might not be a very strong piece, but <clears throat> very common, boy. Very common in the pagan sacrifices was to eat the meat raw. Um, and so they, that might be the reason. Also, there can be health reasons, and maybe God was looking out for some of that. Boiled doesn't fit in with consuming the uneaten portions. If you build a good fire, you can pretty well burn up anything that's left and get it consumed by the fire. You can boil it a long time and you're still going to have stuff left, right? So that's part of it. Also, they're to be roasted with the head and legs and entrails still a part of it. So this is not a normally butchered animal like we would butcher one to consume it. Uh, you've still got uh, the head and the, and, and, uh, the entrails still there. And so... That, that partly shows hasty preparation. We don't have time to do all this. But also, it means that you're not severing the head 
And it, it doesn't take very much understanding here to realize you're going to take this whole animal and you're going to roast it in some fashion. And it is still then going to have the bones there. And it was tradition all the way through that you don't break up the bones of this sacrifice. Does that remind you of anything? John 13, 6. Um, we'll read that real quick. John 13, 6. Shows the fulfillment of a prophecy. Boy, having a little trouble getting here to John. And he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Did I give you the wrong verse? Well, boy, I did then. Oh, I wrote it down right here. I just can't say it. 19.6. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out and saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault with him. Well, I'm getting closer. Now let's do 30. <laughs> let's, do, let's do 36. I must, I'm going to have to write bigger. John 19.36 For these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. I think that's the one you want. That's the one I was looking for. And apparently the Lord intended us to read a few other verses along the way and misdirected my sight. But that's a fulfillment. I think I can read this right. A Psalm 35.17-20 where it's talking about the Messiah and... Um, not breaking a bone. So it fulfilled a prophecy, but it also aligns with the practice that you see brought to us here in this first Passover. You leave the animal, the, the, the lamb, intact. And in like fashion, then Jesus did not have his bones broken. And then we get to verse 11. They say, now this is the manner in which you're going to eat it. You're going to be ready to travel, dressed for travel, shoes on, staff in hand. Your garments are all on, and you're going to do this in haste. For this is the Lord's Passover. And when you look at what's going on here, <clears throat> my, I'm struggling today. <clears throat> um, God has provided for them so much rescue departure he set them apart he's delivered them from the death of the firstborn he has differentiated in front of their eyes and in front of pharaoh's eyes how he handled his own people the descendants of israel the prompt the people of the promise versus the egyptians and he brought his wrath upon the egyptians in escalating ways until we get to this final plague and so in that sense it's the lord's passover it's also the Lord's Passover in that the Lord provides the Passover. This is to honor God. This gives Him credit for protecting the Israelites and gives Him what He deserves with regard to His role out of grace, bringing them out of Egypt and making them a nation just as He promised to Abraham. It also points to Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 7, which is that verse I was missing there for a while. 1 Corinthians 5, 
7. And I hope I wrote that one down right. Uh, well, we walk by faith, not by sight. I don't think so. <laughs> That's not 1 Corinthians 5 7. Yep. So what they're talking about here, and, and we're not going to get to the Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows the Passover, but what we're talking about here is what's coming next is the establishment of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And in between the two then is a time of cleaning out the leaven. And when you get to the New Testament, and I, and it, and I believe it starts here, or has already started somewhere I'm not aware of, but I think it starts here, that the leaven symbolizes sin. And so there is quite an ordeal of you've got to get all of the leaven out of your house. And when we get to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, next not next week, but two weeks, you're going to see that it's a big deal. Nobody eats anything with leavening in it. Now it starts out with, we're in a hurry. We got to go. We don't have time to wait for the bread to rise. We got to cook it now, and you cook it without leavening. You don't. You don't have time for that. But it becomes also then getting rid of the sin in the life. And so when Paul is talking in First Corinthians five here, he is saying there in verse seven, um, "Clean out the old leaven, so you can be a new lump." Be setting aside the things of the flesh. Be setting aside your sin. Do the battle of sin that all of us will go through in order to become more righteous, in order to be, go through sanctification. That's a piece of it. Just as you are, uh, in fact, unleavened. In fact, it's gone because of the Passover and for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. The wrath of God has been taken away from you, just as it happened in the Passover. The wrath of God has been taken away from you because the blood of Christ has been applied to your life. So then you're called to, as we would see in the symbology of the unleavened bread, then clean out your life. And so there's a very direct connection between what's going on here in the Passover and the person of Christ and how that is fulfilled in even greater magnificence as what was done physically in the Old Testament is done spiritually in the New through the Passover that we get from Jesus Christ. And if we want, it, 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 a good exercise is to take some time and go through the book of Hebrews. It's just example upon example of how Jesus took care of our sin through his blood and his sacrifice and his priestly function of presenting that blood as the payment for sin. And so we see that God himself, it's the Lord's Passover. He did it. He did it for the Israelites here in Egypt as he calls them out to be a nation and he establishes all this symbology 
that makes the understanding of what he did through Jesus so much more clear. Questions, comments? I've been reading first time for me chronologically, and all week I wondered why the yeast, there would be no yeast in the home, no yeast in the camp even, and if there was, the people were put out. And you just made sense of it for me, thank and you. It's a lack of purity. It's also a lack of obedience. Yeah, that's kind of what we... And, and even in today's... Um, I, I watched a video which was interesting, but it had so much that was brought in out of Jewish tradition, out of the rabbis, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but it would be tough to find scripture, but it, it's interesting the great lengths they go to on the day before the, the unleavened celebration starts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to get the yeast out of the house. And he, he's a, a very entertaining speaker. He's, he, at, when he made this, and I don't know if, how old it is, but he was the head of the Jews for Jesus organization. And as he's doing this, he says, now, who's responsible for leading the family to ensure that the leaven's all gone? Well, it's the man. And he has some fun then making some comments about men and their ability to clean house. And so what it has become is the woman takes the lead and gets it done. But the man has to come back and inspect the house to ensure that the le there is no leaven left in the home. And the woman gives him a test. She will hide a little bit of something that is leavened. Here that is a piece of bread, a piece of toast, maybe something else. In an obscure place, if she's feeling a little ornery, or in a very obvious place, if she wants to get this done quickly, but she will hide that, and if he can't find it, he hasn't looked enough yet. So that's kind of what it has become in today's, in today's tradition. Rich? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, actually a Sunday school lesson on the unleavened bread would be a great lesson. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's very practical for today. We, as individual Christians, are to be unleavened lives. Yep. And the church is to be. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the importance of church discipline mm -hmm. is so important. Is we are to keep the church with no leaven, no sin, no sinful influence, to be pure, be unleavened, and that just uh, has massive ramifications today. It's very practical, and churches that don't practice church discipline or allowing churches to exist with leaven, which is in direct violation of scripture. Well, and a number of things. Yeah. So really it's yeah. A, yeah, it's a really easy to understand and practical implication. Unleavened lives and unleavened churches. Be in obedience to and honor of and love for the Passover leaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it I I, I I, I agree with with everything you're saying. That's that's a good point. That might be a good would be a good exercise for us to do. The um, you know the challenge with sin 
it's a constant battle to keep pushing the leaven out of our lives, isn't it? And so we don't deceive ourselves that we do it once and we're done. I mean, it's a constant battle to keep that going in the direction it needs to go. Um, and what just saddened me this last week is I was looking for information on the Passover. Um, I ran across something that on its surface sounded like this is really going to be a good thing to get information from. And as I watched it, it quickly morphed into a professor, I don't know where, don't remember his name, I'm not trying to withhold it, I just don't remember, at a theological, at a seminary, who was a professor of history, and he was spending his time telling us why there's absolutely no evidence that the events of the Old Testament are historically accurate. And I'm sitting here going, well, if the events aren't historically accurate, what do we have? I mean, it guts everything because the people that put together that wrote the words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit constantly refer to the events of the Old Testament for their examples. And they are fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so instead of taking, taking the leaven out, they are all just stirring up batches of leaven and just sending it everywhere they can within the church. It's just, it's just sick. That's just no other way to talk about it. Reminds me of Romans 1. Um, he may not have been talking about the moral depravity of the extreme that's in Romans 1, but, you know, they're, they're giving hearty consent to people in their sin. It's just, anyway, sorry. Just reminded me of that as you spoke, Dave, because that's just, it is, it is pretty sickening and uh, very frustrating. Well, let me do these last two verses, and we'll pick up with verse 14 in the future. But God then uh, tells Moses, um, let, me, let me catch my brain back into, the, into where we're at in these verses. Turn the page. Um, so then God tells Moses about the plans that are to come, and this is for the people to hear. I will go through the land of Egypt... Now, who just said he was going to go through Egypt? God himself. Jehovah. And I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, man and beast, against all of the gods of Egypt. And he is bringing judgments, plural. I am the Lord, Jehovah. Here he says, I'm Jehovah. I'm the one true living God. And as we look at those, that verse, uh, and he says, I'm going to strike down, um, it's against all the gods of Egypt. When you look at the Egyptians and their practices, we talked about some of them. Every one of those gods is there to protect them from things that God is doing. He is directly showing their gods are powerless to stop him at any point. And they believe their gods keep them physically safe as well. And now he's going to show them the ultimate destruction of their trust in their gods for physical safety. 
they would try to appease their gods so that they could have lives that had productive crops so they themselves could be productive in terms of offspring so they themselves could be productive as far as gaining and wealth and power and all of the things that world, the world would send you after and God is going to take it away he's taken a lot of it already and he's making the ultimate um, destruction judgment of them with regard to what they expect from their gods verse 13 in Exodus 12 um, and he says the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live and when I see the blood I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt that blood as a sign is twofold it is a sign for them to God but it's also a sign for themselves as they identify with Jehovah himself they will be able to think back to yes I'm one of the children of the promise I put the blood on the door and indeed the Passover happened for us in that God passed over this with regard to this death and he says when I bring the destruction I will pass over you and basically it says when I strike when I smite when I slay when I kill when I slaughter I'm not stopping at your house well that's pretty much where I'll stop for today questions comments so next time we'll pick it up with verse 14 and I'm building up to a time when we get done with this next passage before we do the Passover events themselves and start talking about their trek from Egypt out I've got some videos I want to bring to you it's going to be the right time to do that um, otherwise we might have all kinds of questions about well when it says they went here where was that what were they doing and I think this will be the right time to do it it, it, I will forewarn you, it might be a little tedious at times, but it's definitely worth the trouble. So I'll see you the next time we meet in terms of in this classroom. Thank you. <laughs>